My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune in to this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page, like our Facebook page, and you can listen to this broadcast and actually make comments or ask questions underneath whatever social media channel you listen to. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab on the right-hand side of the website. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 for this podcast, this broadcast, and this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast at 10 o'clock. So every Thursday night, we come together for this to give a live and better understanding of the material that we are covering. So we call this a deeper dive. So if you have been following us online, you will remember that we are in the book of Exodus. And today we're discussing Exodus 35 through 40. That is the end of the book. And so we have journeyed our way through Exodus 1 through 40, and we are closing it down today. We're very excited to do that. And I'm joined today with Jake Flug, one of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake. Good evening. We're missing Shreya tonight. So where is Shreya? I believe she's in Moab right now. She went to Utah to look at dinosaur stuff. Yes. And now she uh, she's in Moab coming home, I believe. She's probably one of those evolutionists. Those evolutionists. Looking at dinosaurs being one of those evolutionists. Can you be an evolutionist and be a Christian at the same time? I don't know. We'll hear from Sheree when she gets back. She's Perfect. probably come to some conclusions about that. I think you can. Um, other people think you can't, but that's a discussion for another day. All right. I want to say happy birthday to my daughter, Nataya. Nataya is 13 years old. There we are on my motorcycle. And right, she, of course, she is on the back. And we are having a fun time there. That was the other day for her 13th birthday. I told her that she could start riding on the back of my motorcycle. Um, yeah, so 13 years old. I can't believe that my daughter is 13 years old today. We've uh, She has been home with us since 15 months, I, I if I get that right, 15 months. So uh, we are now officially a teenager household with rules and boundaries and communication strategies. We'll see if that all works anyway. All right. So Exodus, that's where we're at today. And I am going to do something a little bit different is we are going to jump back to Exodus 32. We're going to read that chapter first, and then we'll conclude with some various topics. Because the last part of Exodus, this 35 through 40, we got priestly garments. We have some building of things. We have the Sabbath day again reaffirmed. We have Moses in the tent. We have the setting up of the tabernacle, things like that. So there's some, I'm not going to say dry, but I'm going to say some pretty nuts and bolts, sticks and cloth, uh, robes and hats kind of writing. So Jake, why don't you take us back to Exodus 32 and we're going to talk about a very important topic um, in our conclusion for the book of Exodus. So going back to Exodus 32 means that we're going back to uh, Sinai. And so Moses is up on the mountain and God's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments and the Book of Covenants. So Exodus 32, starting in verse 1, it reads, the people saw that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, come on, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man, Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what has happened to him. Aaron said to them, all right, take out the gold rings from your ears of your wives and sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took out the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He collected them and tied them up in a cloth 
Then he made a metal image of a bull calf. And the people declared, and the people declared, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he had built an altar in front of the calf. Then Aaron announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. They got up early the next day and offered up entirely burnt offerings and brought well-being sacrifices. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to celebrate. The Lord spoke to Moses, hurry up, go down. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt are ruining everything. They've already abandoned the path of what I commanded. They have made a metal bowl calf for themselves. They bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it and declared, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've been watching these people and I've seen how stubborn they are. Now leave me alone. Let my fury burn and devour them. Then I will make a great nation out of you. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, Lord, why does your fury burn against your own people? whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and amazing force. Why should the Egyptians say he had an evil plan to take the people out and kill them in the mountains and so wipe them off the earth? Calm down your fierce anger. Change your mind about doing terrible things to your own people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you yourself promised i'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and i promise to give your descendants this whole land to possess for all time then the lord changed his mind about the terrible things that he would do to his people moses then turned around and came down the mountain he carried the two covenant tablets in his hands the tablets were written on both sides front and back the tablets were god's own work what was written there was God's own writing inscribed in the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, it sounds like a war in the camp. But Moses said, it isn't a sound of victory song. It isn't the sound of a song of defeat. The sound of party songs is what I hear. When he got near the camp and saw the bull calf and the dancing, Moses was furious, and he hurled the tablets down and shattered them in pieces in the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it down to crushed powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you to lead them to commit such a terrible sin? Aaron replied, don't get angry with me, sir. You know yourself that these people are out of control. They said to me, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this bull calf. Moses saw that the people were out of control because Aaron had let them get out of control, making them an easy target for their enemies. So Moses stood at the camp gate and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. All the Israelites gathered around him. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord, Israel's God said, each of you strap on your sword, go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. Each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The Levites did just as Moses commanded. About 3000 people were killed that day. Moses said, today you've been ordained to the Lord each of you, at the cost of a son or a brother, today you've gained a special blessing for yourself. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a terrible sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Maybe I can arrange a reconciliation on the account of your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. And if not, then wipe me out of your scroll that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, the ones I will wipe off of my scroll are those who sinned against me. Now go and lead the people to the place I described to you. My messenger here will go in front of you. When the day of reckoning comes, I'll count their sins against them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because of what they did with the bull calf that Aaron made. There is an important topic 
within that scripture that I wanted to cover tonight in particular. And I'm going to introduce it this way, because I think this is an important way to, to think about the fact that God can change God's mind. So God can change their mind. And if you look at Exodus 32, 14, there's a statement that the Lord changed his mind. So that ruffles some people's feathers, um, especially certain theological traditions that why would the Lord even think about changing their mind? I mean, that's God knows everything, right? God knows all the future. I think it's important to see theology in two ways. First, we have the theology of God, where we just look at scripture and we try to figure out uh, who God is, what God does, the behavior of God, the nature of God, the characteristics of God, the values of God. But then we have to see the theology of God in me. And so we have the theology of God in the Bible, and we have the theology of God in me. So those are two different ideas. And the first comes strictly from the viewing and reading of scripture. And some people come from the theological position that I can only know God through scripture. And that's mostly true. I would say that's a good filter because I have a lot of feelings and emotions and experiences that are not of God that I believe are just from my, what the Bible would call my flesh. Yet since I'm created in God's image, there's a theology of God in me. And so as long as the Bible says I'm created in God's image, that means that God is somewhat like me, that God is somewhat at least a, a reflection or I'm a reflection or vice versa, whichever way you want to look at it, of the human experience. And so my human experience tells me a lot about who God is. Is God a person? We actually call God the spirit, God in Jesus and God the creator, we call those even the persons of God. Now I know that that's probably language because we don't have any language to call God, but we call ourselves the language that we define ourselves is person. And the language that we define God is person. So even our own language directs God to some kind of personage person of God is personage a word. I don't know. Just made it up. We'll claim it for tonight. <laughs> personage. Um, so when I think about the theology of God in me, that is, that's a different take because the Bible doesn't explain every nuance of God. So we have tried in our human experience uh, with theology to try to fill in the gaps of our lack of understanding. And our lack of understanding is how much does God know? Because I just know a limited amount of stuff. My mind is limited. Is God's mind unlimited? I'm powerful. I can, I can make things and create things, and but I can't create something out of nothing, ex nihilo. So I can't create something out of, well, I, I might, but it's pretty hard. I mean, I kind of be a magician at that point. So I can't necessarily perform the same duties or the same actions as God because God's power is greater. Yet I can like peer in and glimpse into the power of God based on my power. I can peer in and glimpse at God's creation based on my creation or God's thoughts based on my thoughts. So the way that I feel, think, and perceive about others, maybe that's close to the way that God thinks, feels, and perceives about you and me in the positive way, I hope. <laughs> so, so the theology of God in me informs the theology of God. The theology of God in me informs the theology of God. So I need to think of theology in those two ways. Uh, there's been a lot of theology that's made up because we don't want to accept maybe that God doesn't know everything, or maybe God isn't everywhere at all times. Maybe God doesn't know the future. Has anyone ever asked those questions? Those questions are difficult, and I know they've been asked, but maybe we collectively have not asked them enough. So what are the theological implications when we say, Jake, that God can change his mind? What do you see? Because that's what I see that 
I can change my mind. And if I'm created in the image of God, why can't we give God that allowance to change God's mind? The, the biggest struggle with it is we have a, a theology that's very strong and it's this idea of, of predestination. And if, if God doesn't know everything, then things cannot be predestined in the beginning. And so Paul talks about predestination a little bit. Uh, most of it has to do with the Israelites and their relationship with God. Um, but we have this, this word called mutability or immutability of God. And the immutability is God unable to change God's mind. And the mutability is that God is able to change God's mind. And so I'm sure there's some hurdle that people, that people go over to try to justify that God knows everything or God has foreseen everything that is going to happen. And it probably makes them feel better. I would ask, what do you do when you pray then? When you ask God to do certain things or you, you want God to heal somebody or you want some situation to change and to be different. In that point, you're acting as Moses and asking God to change God's path or mind that you see it playing out as. But the Bible does say that God knows everything. Does it? Well, he knows the plans. He already knows your thoughts. There's verses that allude to that. So what do you do? I know what I do with those. What do you do with those? I take the open theist perspective. And open theism is a, is a type of, of theology. You have, you have different types of near theology, like systematic theology or... Go ahead. We'll go, well, I just wanted to know, like, specifically, before we get into that topic, because that's, like, huge. Like, let's spend okay. some time, like, just right there in the in that, like, like the omnis. I want to talk about those omnis. omnis. That's where I'm going for. The omnis are omnipresent. Yeah. Omnipotent, which is all powerful. Right. All knowing, which is omniscience. Right. Then one more. Omnipresent. Omnipresent. Yeah. All right. So that one. Yeah, I think so. The omnis, all knowing, all powerful, all everywhere. I feel like we have put those out there to make ourselves feel like God is in more in control than humans have power to do. But weren't those omnis like created later in the church? I mean, that theology is like newer theology, except one or two of them, right? I, I don't know the exact dates. I would put that later. I don't think that people um, thought in those realms towards, uh, I know Thomas Aquinas addressed it specifically, and that was around the turn of the millennia. So 1000 BC or AD, I'm sorry. But before that, I'm not sure that those types of thoughts would have been played. So I think that we need to be like really careful with subjects like that, like just believing that God is all these things when consistently scripture doesn't necessarily say that that's not really a theology thread that you can tie through all of the Bible. In fact, you go along the Bible and then you get hiccuped right here at Exodus 32, 14, where God changes his mind. I mean, there's, there's, so, there's big hiccups like Adam and Eve in the garden. If God did right. everything, why would God put right. that's, that's a sadist. And, and there's always that, you know, what I call marshmallow theology, where you're just like, you're just throwing marshmallows at each other of, well, I have an answer for that. And you just pull it out of the sky. And you're like, well, that doesn't have any meat to it. You know, well, God, if, if you believe that God is all powerful and all knowing and all creating and all, 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 all present, 
that means that God created sin. Yeah, God created sin. God created every pain that you've experienced in your life. God, God created Satan. God created hell. God took your babies away. I mean, that, that's the logical conclusion to all of that. And you I, have and to, it, you have to be consistent. It, that definitely is where the world goes. That why do bad things happen to good people, or why do even bad things happen? Is that we have put so much emphasis on God being omniscient and on on the all powerful. Right. That God is in control of all pain. And I, I can't go there. Well, I don't think anyone can go there. We do. We but do, I but I don't think we do that for real. We just do that with words. We don't explain, we don't explain more. We remember that. Well, a lot of theology is like words, like we say declare things about God, but we actually don't believe them inside. Mm-hmm. Like we actually don't live it out, but we don't, it's kind of like, love your enemies, you know, like love your enemies. That's really easy to say and very difficult to live out. Yeah. So there's a, God, there's God, a God can, around last week that was literally like literal takings of scripture. So, so reading the Bible and actually taking it very literal goes so far as you can't serve both God and money. Right. Yeah. So if you're actually going to believe that God created sin, evil, Satan, and kills the babies, then, I mean, how is that lived out? You would live in fear. You would have a very, well, you would, yeah, you'd have a very Jonathan Edwards view of, of scripture. You would have a hellfire and damnation. I would, I'd say most evangelical view of, of scripture at that point. Yeah, but again, it's like that's like marshmallow theology. Evangelicalism always like rides on both sides of the fence. They'll say, yeah, this is like, you know, as long as we say nuances of Calvinism, we're, you know, we're in uh, too far in the Arminius camp, you know, you're, you're a heretic. <laughs> so it's kind of like riding both sides of the fence. I don't buy, because honestly, I, I, I have always tried and wanted to be honest with my theology. I've never wanted to be dishonest with my theology. So if, so if I'm a Calvinist, I need to play that out. That doesn't just say I'm a Calvinist in three points. No, that's something different. If you, you can't say I'm a three point Calvinist, no, it's either five or nothing. And so you can't, you can't just pick and choose some systematic theology to believe in. And it has to play out. And for some, some of the 1500 reformers, it did play out. I mean, they were, you know, they were killing everybody that didn't believe what they believed and, and it's kind of crazy times. So you brought up open theism, open theism actually is, uh, actually is, is not the answer, um, because there's problems with it. Um, open theism to me is a consistent, more consistent, honest look at systematic theology or re- what, what I would to come out of the, because I'm not a systematic theologian. I would say I'm a relational theologian. So relational theology uh, is the camp that I would sit in. However, somebody wants to define that is however somebody wants to f- define that. Yet open theism is a relational theology that I, I has that open theism. The one thing it does really get right though, is how God, how I feel that God makes decisions and it's an, I feel statement and we, no one knows how God makes decisions. Right. And so you even have narrative theology now that, is a little more progressive than even right. open theism, but systematic theology, open theism, narrative theology, that's where most people are sitting at now. Um, Catholicism has its own take on it. Um, well, well, I would say that for me, for me, everything goes back to relationship. That's why I'm saying I'm a relational theologian, because like you look at the relationship between God and humankind the most important command in the Bible is relationship with God, relationship with others. You look at uh, 
you look at basically in Exodus, the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to all nations, meaning that they were to love all nations. That's a relationship. A priestly nation. They were supposed to lead other people into love with God too. Right, right. It's the same commandment. And so, right. So you look at you look at just the relational ideas. Jesus came to heal and and bring together, I guess you could say, uh, relationship with God and humankind through Christ again. So through the Messiah. So you look at you look at just the relational components all the way through scripture, and that's a very consistent thread. So I don't think it's relational to say that God knows this future and is going to allow you to fall on your face and die. That's not a relational God. That's like, wouldn't God like, you know, like you're, you're about ready to step off a curb and walk out in the street and get hit by a bus. And God's just going to allow you to do that. Cause why he knows the future is going to happen anyway. And who cares? I mean, what is it like? What is a God like that saying to me? That's like not a very relational God. So, and that's why people have a hard time with God. It's a big one. Yeah. Cause that's how God has been explained. Right. The mind of so, God. Say so the mind of God has been explained. The mind of God. Why does God act the way that he does? Why does God do the things that God does? Correct. So open theism means just specifically, and it means different things to different people, but, uh, but I would say that for most, especially contemporary theologians, it means that the future is open versus closed. So when you have a closed future, that means that God knows everything that everyone is going to do for all time. And the future is closed to God. Open theism means the future is open to God, that God might know everything now can be ever present in the now, but the decisions that are in the future, God has a mind like our mind. This is why in Exodus, he can change his mind or Jesus in the garden can be praying, God, if it's not your will, why would why would God be praying to God in the garden (laughs) (laughs) and ask God to change his mind? That doesn't make any sense. Right. I've also heard it described as not necessarily that God has a human mind when it comes to the future, but that God knows every possible outcome of every possible solution. And so when you say that, that God in mind is made up, God can't change the future you're actually belittling God more than saying God has the option to change God's mind. Yeah. It's like you're putting God in this, like your own, your own puppet. We think that God in that theology is treating us like a puppet, but we're almost putting God in this box of God's the puppet. I think that there's some scriptures, you know, that, that allude to some things or some challenges that you have to walk through in Romans and oh Ephesians. And there's some, there's some books of the Bible that definitely, you know, if, if you want to take that stance of what's called Calvinism or a reformed theology would allude to those kinds of five pointers of a systematic theology. You, you, you say five pointers. I think we may describe what five point is god so tulip t-u-l-i-p we are born totally depraved you is god saves us unconditionally based on his own will not based on our faith or lack of faith god is we are totally depraved we are dead on the floor when we're born unconditional election then therefore Jesus only died for those that he elected or that he saved that's limited atonement i is irresistible grace which means that i have an irresistible calling to that salvation so i'm totally depraved dead on the floor god unconditionally elects me based on nothing besides his own will 
Therefore, Jesus only died for the saved, those that he elected. Therefore, uh, that, that grace is irresistible because God called me to that grace. And then therefore I can never lose my salvation and never can walk away from my faith, which is called perseverance of the saints. Uh, tulip in the opposite would be Arminianism or a version of no Calvinism. So saying no to Calvinism, totally depraved, no, but depraved, conditionally elected. Therefore, atonement is not limited. I can resist grace and therefore I can walk away from God. That's an Arminianist. An open theist would say God wants a relationship with us and is totally trying always to work a relationship with us like you see with the Israelite people and doesn't know the future, listens to the people's prayers, answers calls to the people in their prayers as they pray and respond and worship idols. And God does things in that case too, uh, gives them bread to eat and water to drink when they're hungry and thirsty, some things like that. And so the future is open but it's always a relational context. It's, it's relational theology is not, is not even close to a system, systematic propositional theology, either Calvinism or Arminianism. So, right. Did I get all that right? Did great. Good job. That was a lot. It was a lot. You just kept saying five <laughs> points versus three points. And so five point Calvinist. That's your good Southern preacher right there. Not good. Well, a reform theology, God bless them. I mean, it's been around for a very long time. Uh, you oh, know, people like John, long. well, not that long, but long enough, 500 years. So, so, you know, your Jonathan Edwards, your John Calvin's, your Zwingli's, your. Well, Zwingli was his own. He, he moved away from it, but he was, yeah, so he was part of he sat at he sat at the table too. The table talks. Yeah. He was there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's open theism. <clears throat> I th- I think that I think that relational theology is is the most consistent theme and also, <clears throat> I guess, a systematic. If you want to call it a systematic theology, it's a system. It I, is. Wouldn't, I wouldn't put it systematic, but right. Um, it's consistent though. I, I would, if people are looking this up, I would, I would, by how you're describing relational theology, it would, it would be almost a narrative theology as well. Right. So there's one thing that open theism or narrative theology or relational theology are just here we are. Yes. Just call it whatever. Uh, there's not a fixed trajectory for humankind. And that's where it gets like, oh, where are we headed? Right? So with, with all systematic theology, there's a fixed trajectory that Messiah's coming back, that the world's going to end, and we're all going to blow off and go to heaven. And we're going to wear diapers and play ukuleles up in the clouds Yikes. and ukes or, or stringed instruments of some kind. Um, so that's a fixed trajectory, open theology, open theism. Actually, there's, there's a plurality of possibility. And so that's where it's like, wow, what is, what does the end of the world actually look like? And that's why I'm a recreationist where heaven comes well, down to the earth. Plura- the plurality of, of endings is a positive, not a negative. Yeah. There's a plurality of possibilities. So like the work that I am doing on earth just doesn't burn up with the forests and implode with the end of the world. Mm. That it's like, who cares that I did all this work on earth, that I store up treasures in heaven, which means the blessings that I will receive are the blessings that I built on earth. How does that look? I have no idea, but I know that they, uh, the work of reconciliation is what I'm supposed to do. I'm a minister of reconciliation and as heaven comes down to earth and earth is recreated into this new heaven earth, 
the golden box of revelation comes down and the streets of gold and pearls and blah, 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 that beautiful recreated garden. I don't think my work here on earth is going to be in vain. In vain. Like just wasted. Yeah. For my own self gratification, like my own self nirvana realization. I don't think that that's what I do. do. I didn't expect us to go to the end of days right now, but it's like, <laughs> anyway, I mean, I mean that, that to say that God is immutable does go all the way out to a, I don't think a rapture theology because that's just bunk, but that's a different, that's a different thing. Yeah. But it does go to us going to heaven away from earth. And that is where that is the start of it. Mm -hmm. So I had a professor once and he said, I just remembered this because we were talking about um, Googling's versus Gutenberg life. So Gutenberg invented the printing press and would print paper and we're more Googling uh, we're more less Gutenberg and more Google type lifestyle. And you have something called open source in the Google life. So Wikipedia, in a sense, is an open source type of thing. So lots of contributions, lots of building everybody. Like if you become a editor of Wikipedia, which could be anybody on the planet, they just chime in and say, Hey, I want to be an editor. And here's my qualifications. I think you have to like maybe fill out a form and sign a waiver. Maybe, I don't know. There's, but, a, there's a few different steps, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. There's a few different steps. It's like, at least give your name and email or something. And you can, you can start editing on Wikipedia. The thing about Wikipedia is the moment you put false information in on Wikipedia, the other, you know, 150 million people that are looking at that site can change it. And it changes instantly. Like you put in, Oh, 1956, actually it's 1965. You trans, you know, you switch those two let, uh, numbers around. So, so a closed future is like a Gutenberg Britannica encyclopedia God that sits on your shelf and collects dust and you pull it out and it's this the same story where we are more of an open theology would be a Wikipedia God where there's lots of contributions building mm -hmm. into the God story. So that's my metaphor for tonight. It's great. We have to get back to the scripture. Can we get off this topic? <laughs> this is like till. Well, we went 45 minutes on this one. So. Wow. Commercial break. We are going to start this series coming up, Atlas of the Heart. And Atlas of the Heart is Brene Brown's book, but I'm doing a series based on the structure of this book, looking at a biblical perspective of where we go when we fear, where we go when we compare, where do we go when we um, hate, things like that. So this book, you can get it online. I don't know how much it is. It was 18 bucks and I bought a bunch of them. Uh, but this book, if you wanted to read it before we were starting that in two Thursdays. So next Thursday, Sheree is back with us. Thank goodness to keep us on track. <laughs> so Sheree is back with us and we're going to talk about a exciting topic that we're not revealing tonight. We're going to reveal it on our social media channels. And so we're going to talk about that next week. And then the following week, we start Atlas of the Heart. Okay, let's get back to Exodus. Well, we were in Exodus. Exodus 32, 14 is important. Well, that was last week too, so we were in even better. I know. Okay, Christians are the heirs to Exodus. And we see some beautiful crossover into the New Testament when it comes to the stories of Exodus. You see in Matthew, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, basically portrays Jesus as the new Moses. And the mountain is an important metaphor in scripture because the mountain is where gods lived, gods, 
any God lived on the mountain and my God lives on a higher mountain than your God. So going up to a mountain to visit God, it was a very normal thing. So, so basically the, the Sinai idea and Mount Sinai is not that big of a mountain. So, so the Egyptian gods, I'm sure lived on higher mountains and God basically said, I'll pick this one. Cause I don't need a very high mountain to prove that I'm, I'm sure. God, yeah. but we're not sure of that. But anyway, so he goes up on the Mount Sinai. So Jesus ascending up to the mountain to give the sermon on the Mount that is Moses experience. So that is a type anti-type, whatever you want to, how does that go, Jake type man type. So Jesus is the type Moses is the anti-type yeah, or vice versa. Depends on your, uh, your view of scripture. Um, so what is speaking to what? Yeah. Okay. So type anti-type type thing. Jesus would be the type. Moses would be the anti-type. Okay. So if we're wrong on that, you can comment and correct us because we're in a Wikipedia open theistic type experience. So (laughs) you can correct us as we go. All right. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's like going up, going up to the mountain. There's other mountain experiences. What are the other ones? I can't remember right now. Uh, Jesus in the Mount of Olives. Jesus uh, going to the lonely places to pray is oftentimes going up into a hill country. Uh, 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 transfiguration. Yeah. Golgotha. Right. The, the end of the life of Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just going up, up on the Mount. Yeah. To Jerusalem. Cause Jerusalem was on top of the Mount Yeah, mm-hmm. and preaching at, at the, uh, the temple. Right. Even like the things that were up on the mountain were important too. So the the plants that were up on the mountain, the trees that were up on the mountain, that's an important Mm -hmm. idea because what grows up on top of mountains, right? So hardy, usually hardier type trees. So the almond tree uh, was was a hardier type, Olive, olive, fig, yeah. We had this beautiful uh, illustration the other day that uh, we attended in a, a Muslim wedding, yeah. and the 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 beauty of just this one piece was, you know, it was very is very um, unfamiliar, and so I I can't I'm not going to give any opinion of what I thought of it or because number one they were speaking a language I didn't speak I didn't understand anything they were saying they dressed completely different than I would ever dress they acted different than I would ever act they included people in the ceremony that I it's unfamiliar to me uh but this one thing was very cool they had a date they had an almond wrapped in a date Mm-hmm. In Ezekiel 34, it talks about the date being uh, the sweetness and the fortitude of God. Now, the Islamic tradition comes from the Abrahamic. So, so remember, like um, in Exodus, uh, Jethro was a, a Midianite uh, priest. Yeah, priest of Yahweh. Right. And so he came from the Abrahamic line through relationship that was outside of this Israelite cluster. So you have Moses and this cluster of Abrahamic people, but then you had others and those others, Ishmael, Ishmael, that's thought to be the, the Arab uh, people. And so then you had this Midianite priest Jethro and and so, uh, where was I going with this? Oh, so the traditions are the traditions that you see in other places are borrowed, taken, but also like verified through pre-Mohammed Arab or pre-Mohammed uh, Muslim that you have a pre-Mohammed type uh, polytheistic faith actually before Mohammed with um, Islam. 
so there would have been traditions flowing down all of those people groups and the date and the almond have been very consistent with monotheistic faiths where you have the date is the sweetness and the fortitude of God, the almond, the burning bush on the mountain, the almond tree, that almond dates, dates back, no pun intended, that almond dates back. So the almond represents the blessing or the wealth of humankind or the blessing of God, wealth meaning the eternal wealth of God, wrapped with the sweetness and the fortitude of God. That'll Good. preach. That'll preach for years. It's a great metaphor. I exactly. We did say monotheist, but the Israelites were monolarity. Remember? Well, they, they were polytheists polytheist before Moses. Yeah, and even after Moses, we talked about that. Yeah, for a short period of time. Yeah, I guess right. Maybe. Yeah, I'd say. I mean, they, I'd say go ahead. A while afterwards. Well, what's quite a while, like several hundred years? Mm, probably all the way until until they Thanks. went into exile. I'd put that well, that, that brings up and begs the question, when was this book written? <laughs> Maybe this book was written to help them out of their polytheism into a monotheistic type. That would be an interesting yeah. study. If you, read, if you read Exodus, like God is not the only god in the story right 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 okay three gospels yeah talk about the lord's supper specifically tied to passover so that's a direct connection that we carry over in our christian faith uh jesus's death is modeled after the sacrificial lamb so that is like a direct metaphor tied into exodus baptism actually we see through uh, the New Testament is related to Cross the parting, yeah, yeah, the parting of the Reed Sea, and so as we are baptized, our sins are washed. Mm -hmm. So it's like the evil is washed away. We're like born in a new creation, a new community, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then, uh, who wrote the the Book of Hebrews? We are not sure at all. But who do we believe wrote the book of Hebrews? <laughs> uh, I would I would put the author of Hebrews as Phoebe, the letter carrier of Romans. I would too. Sounds better. It's like a better story. No, it's the truth. So anyway, Phoebe, who wrote the book of Hebrews, speaks of Jesus's followers through the wilderness and like find it. So the metaphor of being in the wilderness and then finding eternal life or the promised land is kind of our destination. So those are the, the Christian uh, inherited views and ideas yeah. out of the book of Exodus, which are really important. I think that those are crucial tieovers uh, to our faith today. Do One we have any more? I oftentimes think that Jesus' first miracle is tied to the first sign of God. Water to wine? Yeah. Water to blood. Oh. Because wine is considered, yeah, interesting. It's just too coincidental. That is interesting. I've never thought about that before. I just thought that's of it. well, good job. Thank you. Yeah. Let's write a book. Still waiting for that Zondervan there deal. Yeah, Nave Perez right here. Come on, people. Okay. So big ideas from Exodus. We're going to conclude with this because these are some important uh, big ideas that we want all of our listeners and our church body and those that are listening in, we want you to get grasp and capture some bigger ideas. I have a quote that I want to give before we continue. And I think that this is an important, very important idea. We talked a lot about um, deconstruction. We talked about reconstruction. We talked about the fear of deconstruction. You know, that word is thrown around kind of trendy right now. It was interesting when we started talking about deconstruction, I didn't feel like it was a trendy. And then all of a sudden everyone was talking about it. And I'm like, let's quit talking about this because it's too trendy. But honestly, 
there's so many people that are going through a deconstructionist process because, and it makes sense. I think that the church has done some things and been some things and haven't, and they haven't been honest with theology. And so this time through the book of Exodus was just our time to be honest with the biblical, the biblical narrative of, wow, that was loud behind me. Did you hear that? That was next to me. <laughs> that was super loud. Something's going on outside. So, so. <laughs> oh, well, you're next uh, to me, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. I forgot. I'm right here. Yeah. yeah. No. So, uh, I think that the church has not been honest with theology. We've tried to be honest with theology through this narrative of Exodus. And that has made some people really nervous. That's made some people really question uh, us. That's made some people downright mad and some people overjoyed and some people like finally, and some people like, I'm so glad you're doing this. So I think that deconstruction is just a process wherever you're at in your Christian faith. I think that if you're not willing to deconstruct, to construct, I think that there's some challenges there of wall building and, and kind of like too much stoicism, what I'll call it, just the idea of the being immutable as we see God is mutable. We need to be like God ourselves. Something you said is that the church hasn't been honest with theology and i would say that's that can be a part of it that people are afraid to even even preach what they are talk about what they know because right. it might ruffle feathers they might lose contributions they might um lose people um, oh, you have to pre you have to preach to the tickling ear so that they'll keep tithing. I mean, that's just yeah. like the the ever cycle of yeah. The and then you have the other side of it where some people just don't know. And so they don't can, know what they don't know what they don't know, right? Oh yeah. So they've been taught this for their whole life and they don't well, that's what I'm saying. They isn't that like a dishonest story that they've known? I don't know if it's, I would call it dishonesty. If just like, cause it's, there's some innocence behind it. That's it. why I said the church, should I say church leadership? Well, even like the people in like church leadership that don't even know, like I True. know a lot that they yeah. are either they're so in, ingrained in a certain area of thought or. Right. I think that there's some, there's some ignorance there that, is beyond dishonesty. That makes sense. Yeah, it started from somewhere. Yeah. So totally. somebody somebody was, you know, they didn't want to talk about maybe the problems with Exodus. So we don't talk about it. We hide them because we want people to believe the story as is. And Wasn't, we craft it. Yeah, because we think people are stupid or ignorant or whatever. So we preach it and fabricate it in a way that people will accept it. Yeah, because if you if you had started attacking, honestly, in our culture, you started attacking Exodus. Oh. All of our you, legal system. Yeah, you just attacked God at that point. <laughs> Here's our quote. Listen yeah. to this. What makes the Bible God's word isn't its uncanny historical accuracy, as some insist, but the sacred experiences these stories point to beyond the words themselves. Watching these ancient pilgrims work through their faith, even wrestling with how they did that, models for us our own journeys of seeking to know God better and commune with Him more deeply. I think that's a beautiful thing because it's Peter ends. If you wanted to pick up some of his writing and listen to his podcast, it's some good stuff. I don't agree with everything that he says. Um, I agree with a lot of things he says because he's honest. At least he's honest about the things that I disagree with too. He's just trying to take an honest look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not the historical accuracy of the book of Exodus that makes the book of Exodus beautiful. 
It's actually the story of God that makes it beautiful. And whether it was historical or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is the story that's actually being told and whether we are actually capturing that story. That's why it's called mythicized history. It has historical nuances to it. It's a historical idea, but the historicity of it in its, of itself, hmm, there's major challenges with that. So we opened up with that, that we can't look at it as history, but we can look at it as mythicized history. And the mythicized history of the story of the gods and the problem is, is there's not any evidence that the Israelite people were in Egypt in the time frame that is being said that it, 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 they are in the context of the amount of people and the situation and the slavery conditions and the release and all this stuff that we're talking about. There's no evidence of it. Well, what about the, what about the chariots down in the bottom of the Red Sea? And they go, well, you know, Lots of empires dump their trash in the bottom of the Red Sea. And so to say that that was like the Exodus crossing, there's just not, there's problems with that. And so you can come up with nuances or maybe thoughts, allusions to the story, but people spend way too much time trying to prove the history of the Bible versus just looking at it for the rich beauty word of God the inspired word of God. So like, okay, what makes it more inspired? The beauty, the history, the story, the ever revealing, the ever inspiring story narrative, or is it more inspired if you, if you find this, the sticks, the pots, the chariots and the brick houses in the ground? I think it means something to find those things. Well, sure. Yeah, but it's the point is bigger than the than the story itself. It's like the Shroud of Turin, right? The Shroud of Turin. Remember that? The Shroud of Turin. You know, I kind of believe that that was the Shroud of Turin. I mean, I believe that it was the Shroud. Why not? You know, it's and it's okay if it's not. It's cool. They used to pull it out every Easter. They used to show people and then they would put it back into its box. And then every Easter, the church would bring out the Shroud of Turn. The, the Shroud of Turn has been around for a long That's no, no new discovery. I mean, people tried to burn it. People would go in and light the church on fire that it was stored. So they'd always have to move it and hide it in secrecy and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, so do you believe in Jesus more because we have this piece of cloth that possibly was on his face? I, you know, I, I think that that's, that's pretty thin. <laughs> All people, right. People want those thin things. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like whipped cream on top of your mocha. So the story of reoccurring recreation. Something to go back to though. If I could. Um, <laughs> the mocha comment. <laughs> no, not the mocha comment. The, the story of Exodus is not just one story. Yes. And if you read it for the continuity of one story, you'll get lost in the details instead of yeah. looking at it as a, as a compilation of multiple tribes remembering their history or what they want to be remembered. Like there's different, um, the 10 commandments are given twice. Why? There's right. no reason for them to be given twice. The uh, Passover is explained in different ways that contradict each other because different people were, were speaking into it. And so instead of just silencing one sector, Exodus shows mm-hmm. the, like the unification of, of thought and of the Israelite people to remember their past. Right. And that brings up the different traditions, different tribes. So yeah. the different traditions, different tribes talking about the same ideas, the same story. Um, remember this was written in exile. And in exile, it's not like they lived right next to each other. It wasn't like they were in the same prison building. They were all over the place. And so they didn't have cell block C for this tribe and cell block D for this tribe. So, so they were tribal, even in exile. So writing these stories, yeah, maybe some leaders crossed over. Hey, what are you writing about? You know, maybe, um, but some of them didn't even talk to each other. 
And so, but then you came out with this beautiful story that, hey, we have. So that's where it's like, okay, where did this story come from? Maybe it was an oral tradition. Oral traditions are very powerful. Maybe it was an oral tradition about a story. Maybe it was maybe thought of like early on. Uh, and this was a story. Maybe this was a story uh, for the people in exile. Maybe this Egyptian pharaoh was the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. So we just have to remember that this story was, the, the, the big idea was first, this is mythicized history. The story is a compilation of other stories because it's tribal, it's tribal traditions coming together. So sometimes you have this fragment and then it just changes direction. You're like, why? Well, that's one of those reasons. Uh, and the story could be written for exile and the exilic people, the people actually in, uh, in oppression again. And they're talking about modern concepts within their context. And they're speaking about modern contextual oppression under a different king. That's a very real possibility. And it makes sense, complete sense. Any tools that I use for any, any other book of the Bible or scripture that I'm reading, I would use that same tool here. Why would I just like believe this is historical and not apply the same tool? It's written for the people that it was written to. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, but one of the most important uh, ideas in conclusion of the book of Exodus is this is a reoccurring recreation story where you have God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and hovered over the deep and the land there was light and darkness or so splitting of the twos the dualistic split light and darkness we have sky and earth we have you know, heavens and earth. I mean, we have water and land. And so when these things begin to separate and split, it's taking chaos and bringing an order. So in the book of Exodus, you see chaos, then order, chaos and order. So plagues and then crossing of the Red Sea into the land of milk and honey where we're going to cross over into the promised land from chaos into order, even the building of the tabernacle, the same word that's used. It is completed for the tabernacle is the same words that are used in Genesis. It is completed. And so, so the idea of even Sabbath, and now we see Sabbath, even the idea of sin, when they started worshiping the calf, Right after the calf, chaos, right after the calf, now we see Sabbath. We're back to now created order of things. So, so the whole book is in a cyclic pattern of a reoccurring recreation story, which makes sense because story is written or the creation story is written in a cycle. It's given twice in Genesis, and now it's given multiple times in Exodus. And so we, we just see that that makes complete, complete sense. The same tool that we use for Genesis, we can also use for Exodus. Genesis is a poem. This is a narrative. Genesis is speaking about a greater reality than the words on the page. Exodus is speaking about a greater reality than the words on the page. That's all we have. That's all I had. Do you have any other thoughts? That the Genesis and Exodus are to be read as a as a one-two part series. To not to not split them apart. And I think a lot of yeah. trouble we get is when we try to we try to split them apart. Right. Um, same editor, probably mm -hmm. multiple yeah. sources, like the same again. We see that all over the place, but right. the themes were consistent. And so you see 
in Genesis, like in the Noah story or the Abraham story or the Israel story that God is creating again, over and over again. Right. So why, why would that same thing not cross over into Exodus? Right. And that's what we talked about a lot through it. Um, yeah, it's written for a purpose. And that purpose is not to just tell a story of what happened a long time ago. It's what to point in the future and what mm-hmm. Shereya says in this too, to give her words tonight since she's not here is that you were once slaves, so don't enslave people. Mm-hmm. Pretty much let's, just, let's just leave it at that. We hope that you got something out of this series. Hopefully you can tell us about it one day, that you got something out of this series. Uh, even if you were just bored to tears, let us know, and we'll change it for the future. Don't, don't let me know. <laughs> don't let Jake know. Just let me know. I'll, I'll work on changing it for the future. Next week, we have a special topic. Sheree is going to join us. And then the following week, we're going to jump into Atlas of the Heart, structurally built off of Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, looking at a biblical idea of emotion and the places we go when we experience different emotions, coming up with a biblical a view of emotionality. All right. Thanks for joining us and good night, everybody. Have a great, great rest of your evening. Good night.